Hello and welcome to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the interests and actions of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today is a writer, marketing and PR specialist, and overall storyteller who has been working in the skateboarding industry for nearly two decades. Robert Brink grew up in New Jersey and made his way to California in the mid-2000s to work for iconic brands and publications such as DC Shoes, Soul Technologies, Transworld, Skateboarding Magazine, or Playboy, to name a few. In 2012, he launched Weekend Buzz on Tony Hawk's Right Channel, an internet talk show where he and co-host Erica Yari interviewed pro skaters in a laid-back setting, which influenced many podcasts in the skateboarding industry from then on. In recent years, he launched a high-end candle manufacturing company called The Hundredth Acre and started working at USA Skateboarding as their marketing director, covering the Olympic Games in Tokyo in 2021 and the future 2024 Olympics in Paris, France. He's about to launch a new show with them, which we talk about towards the end of our discussion. So here's my conversation with Robert Brink. I hope you enjoy it. So you live in LA, right? I live in a town called Laguna Beach. That's about an hour south of LA and an hour north of San Diego. So it's right in the middle of like both of the major skate cities in California, you know? Right, right, right. Is that which, where you're originally from, actually? Or because I think I read some, I, I heard that you uh, spent a lot of time in New Jersey growing up, but um, um, yeah. did you, were you originally from California or? No, um, I'm, I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, oh, about okay. 20 minutes outside of New York City. Right. But the funny part is like a lot of people, as I got older into my 20s and 30s before I moved to California, a lot of people didn't believe I was from New Jersey, like even New Jersey people. Really? Like, you don't talk like you're from here and you don't act <laughs> like you're from here. And I'm like, I don't think I was made to be here. You know, it's like, it's a whole different world in New Jersey. I, I mean, I, it's home. I'll mm -hmm. always love it, but I just don't think I was meant to be there, you know? And plus yeah. you have, you kind of, at the time in 2004, when I moved out to California, mm -hmm. you had to come out here to have a career, you know? There was a couple jobs in New York mm -hmm. or like a couple local sales rep jobs, but people in the industry hold, held on to those forever because... Yeah, they were rare. Yeah, and it's like, oh, I could work in the skate industry, but be a, a Vans rep or something on the East Coast and cover like New York, New Jersey. So those were covet, coveted roles that people held on to. Yeah. So I worked at a skate shop, but I knew if I wanted a career, I'd have to move to California, so... And I was also just sick of the winter and stuff. Yeah. Like I said, the people didn't always mesh with me. I just didn't relate to the people and resonate as much as, you know, like a California culture, you know? Yeah. Did, would you say it's more laid back in California or more open-minded, basically? Or? I mean, it's definitely more laid back. Like, people aren't as, like, stressed out or angry. angry. They don't have, like, those sort of rough rough around the edges personalities you know mm -hmm. yeah but you know with that comes california can be very also shallow sometimes like people can be really nice on the outside and there's a lot of people like you know pretending they have these great lives or they have money and yeah. then on the inside they might just be shitty people or they'll talk shit about you behind your back where mm -hmm. in new york and new jersey the area i grew up People might have been more honest up front and more, um, you know, a little more abrasive or something, mm -hmm. but they're being genuine and 
And they'd also, they'd also, you know, a lot of people will do anything for you, you know, they'd give you the shirt off their back if you needed it, you know, so not that all California people are bad or anything. There's great people no, here, of but course, yeah. there's a difference in the exterior appearance and mm-hmm. personality before you get to know people sometimes. So yeah, it's tricky. I had a hard time adjusting when I got out here because people, people were great, but they were different different you know so yeah well yeah i mean it's so far away it's uh i find that i get along with a lot of european or british people really well like having grown up on the east coast you know compared to calf when people come out here from like europe or england and i meet them i get along with them really well yeah it's funny yeah yeah no it makes sense i mean you're closer to to europe on the east coast so uh yeah yeah i should i i lived in new york for a little bit when i was younger um between 2011 and 2013 and i kind of felt what you were just re- referring to like when i got there i met some some i think there were people from california i'm not sure if they were actually from california but uh basically people who were very like friendly uh the first time i saw them but then the next time i would see them they pretty much didn't even recall meeting me in the first <laughs> place and were kind of dicks you know yeah they cool guide you yeah, exactly. And I was yes. like, okay, so I guess that's uh, that must be like an American thing or, or whatever. But I uh, actually only had that a couple of times and not with actual New Yorkers, so to speak. So uh, Yeah, exactly. So you know, you know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. And so actually, um, can you tell me a little bit about growing up in New Jersey and starting skateboarding? And I read somewhere and I, I heard in some interviews you did uh, that you were friends, uh, probably still are friends with uh, Tim O'Connor. And you would yeah. drive him around because I think he didn't have a driving driver's license for a long time or whatever. So yeah. uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, the brief history of me is like I, I was in Little League and stuff like any other kid, baseball and soccer. But then I discovered BMX in like fifth or sixth grade and I was like blown away. Like, And I was like riding BMX and doing tricks on my bike. And then then I, that's how I met like local skaters. Mm-hmm. And eventually I like crossed over to skateboarding because I was the only dude on a bike and I was really skinny and really light and the bike was so heavy to do tricks on and I guess after all my years of soccer when I stood on a skateboard I was like it felt so natural and okay. way way easier maybe just because I played soccer so long right but yeah so I crossed over into being a skater and then I as I started like I guess being introduced from one person or one crew to the other I met Tim O'Connor and his crew, like, it was right when the Questionable video came out. Okay. Uh, Plan B, so it was 92, 91. I had never seen anyone, like, Tim knew, like, all the tricks in the video, like, all the flip tricks. I had never seen anyone who was, like, that good before. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how does he know these tricks already? Like, the video just came out. and Yeah, and just over time, like, Poncho Moeller eventually moved Mm -hmm. to our area. And mm-hmm. then he lived, Pancho went to my high school for a while while he was like um, sponsored by World and Big Brother and all that. And then he moved in with Tim and then they both got on Think. And then, and then as we got driver's licenses, like Bobby Pulio lived in our zone, like not too far. Uh, Mike and Quim Cardona right, was yeah. sponsored by the same shop as them. And I'm trying to think who else was in our crew, like German, German Neves. He, he now does Patter, Patterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with him as well, yeah. I mean, obviously, there was tons of other skaters and homies, but, you know, and then we were in and out of New York a lot, so we were skating with Rodney Torres and people like that, and, you know, then Tim got good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, you know went pro and started skating more with winning and Papalardo and like Philly and Love Park and I was yeah. busy in, at that point I was busy in college and I I was like I'm not going to be a pro skater yeah these dudes are way too good I'm going to stay in school and you know have a safety net you know and mm-hmm. it was actually um, I had met Ryan G he was shooting photos of Tim like locally he was he's mm-hmm. like a an old Philly photographer yeah I've heard his name before but uh. He was shooting all those guys like around the time, like when they were. He had a part in Chomp on this. Oh, okay. He had the opener in Chomp. <laughs> I need to check it out. I haven't seen that in years, but yeah. But he was also around that time, he was shooting like all those dudes when they were younger, like Tim and Bam and Mike Maldonado. And so he would come by, and it was actually Ryan where I was like, man, this guy's like the East Coast photographer, like mm. for our zone. I was like, maybe I could be the writer for our zone, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, that was, I stayed in school. I, f- I failed my biology major and I switched to writing just on the recommendation of a professor of mine. Okay. I didn't even know I was good at writing or anything. I just was like, a professor told me and asked me if I liked it. And I just was like, I'm switching my major to that. <laughs> you know, that's no, cool. He gave you kind of pointed you in that, di- in that, uh, direction basically. Yeah, I mean, there was times when Tim literally needed ride rides places to like shoot his first magazine photos or and so early on I was driving Tim and I was having the time of my life. It's not like I was making any sacrifices, but I was mm-hmm. driving him to film his Eastern Exposure parts and him and Dan Wolf and driving him to shoot photos or driving him to demos that he needed to like all kinds of random stuff and Yeah. When I became a writer and I was out of school, he just started introducing me to all the magazine editors. Mm-hmm. You know, the dudes at Transworld, the dudes at Strength. It was Eric Stricker at the time, rest in peace. Um, Aaron Meza at Skateboarder. Like, mm-hmm. Tim introduced me to everybody, and they were all just like, yeah, you can write for us. And it was actually pretty easy. Like, I don't want to sit here and, like, lie that I had some huge struggle. I just don't think there were a lot of people trying to write or with the with the training that I had and then I had Tim introduce me so yeah made it easier but yeah he is responsible for me getting in the door in the industry like I worked at a shop and it might have happened eventually but Tim like fast-tracked it for me and yeah you helped each other out basically yeah but not in the way like he got me sponsored or I got him sponsored it was like two totally different career paths and I think it was cool that it worked out that way you know yeah And everybody was really nice to me, too. All the editors and stuff were, like, very gracious, gave me a chance, like, you know, usually hired me more than once, like, you know. So Mm -hmm. it all worked out. But, yeah, Tim, Tim, I was just with Tim at the Olympics. I hadn't seen him in a while, but... What was he doing there? Was he he there with Adidas, or what what was his, basically, his role over there? Okay, so he was the in-venue announcer. Okay, so I don't know who else. There was someone from Japan also doing it, mm-hmm. but he was he was calling the runs and announcing the schedules and stuff like that. Okay, I got to hear his voice for you know a week. <laughs> yeah, did he do a lot of jokes like he usually does, or did he kind of tone it down for the Olympics? Or I mean, he was still Tim, but you got to be really careful during the Olympics. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a, a more well-behaved Tim. Grown up, Tim. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned it a little bit, but um, so you went to college to study writing. Yeah. 
And uh, th was that still in New Jersey or, or did you already go to California at that point? No, no, no. I was, um, for many, many years, I was working at a bagel shop while I was like skateboarding. And that's something I'm actually starting a book about. Oh, cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that as well. Yeah. I was doing that while I was skating and getting through college. And then I, w then I got a second job running, working at a skate shop. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was, so I was working at a bagel shop, working at a skate shop and going to college and then grad school for writing. And then as soon as I, right towards the end of grad school, I finally got out of the bakery and was, I got a job as a book editor at a publisher in New Jersey. One of my professors in college actually helped me get that job. It's just like the Tim thing. It was crazy. It wasn't something I asked for. It just happened. And it was such an amazing an amazing step in my career. Um, I'm always thankful to her too. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, and so while I was at the book editor, I was writing, I started freelance writing thanks to Tim. And then I was also still a buyer for the skate shop. Like I was okay. doing everything remotely. Like I would go in once a week, check the inventory, but then still call in orders. So I had like three jobs and then, wow. And then once I finished up my master's and stuff, it was like skating, working, and trying to get to California, <laughs> you know? Okay. So from like 2001 to 2004, I was running the skate shop, freelance writing, trying to build connections and network, and then and applying for jobs out in California. And then in the middle of 2004, I moved to California. What prompted the, the move? Did you find a job there or what, what uh, initiated that uh... It was actually funny. Um, there was a job at Transworld that Skin Phillips was... I was already writing for Transworld, Transworld Business, Transworld Stance, like all their magazines I was writing for. Okay. It was Skin who... I think they had some job for me and they wanted me to come out. And then all of a sudden they had some... Like a reorganization of the company. And that position got eliminated. It was a new role. It was probably like a digital role or something. And uh, he was like, dude, I feel so bad, but... I promise I'll take care of you. And I was like, okay. And within a month or two, he was like, I think I got a job for you at DC. They need a copywriter, someone to do their, their email list and their email newsletter was huge at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I got hired by DC under the PR department to basically be their writer and handle their email marketing. So Skin came through on his word. So amazing. DC paid for my move and everything. It was awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why you first went to Vista, right? Was that the name of the city? Yeah, I didn't know any better, you know? I was just mm -hmm. like, okay, anywhere in California is cool. <laughs> yeah, you're getting closer to uh, your... There's your no winter. Yeah, and I had friends in that area. Like, all my homies from Transworld were all down there in Oceanside and Vista and Carlsbad. So I was like, fuck it, wherever. And it was only like four miles from work, so... Yeah, it made sense. Yeah, I mean, I would never live there now. Like, the area I lived in and everything was, it was just boring. There's nothing wrong with Vista. It's, the area I lived in sucked, and I was just working and disoriented and trying to adjust to California. Like, yeah, it just wasn't my style. But Yeah, it was uh, just, um, how do you say, like, uh, in French, it's uh, une étape. Like, it was just uh, one stop along the way exactly. to yeah. accomplishing your goals. But, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know. I was just like... I'll just get to California and get a job and figure everything else out. Right. I just was happy I had like a little bit of money in the bank and a paycheck. That way I wouldn't fail, you know, mm -hmm. like and have to come back to, to Jersey. And my biggest concern was having to go back because 
when I was in Jersey, I would meet people who would leave. They're like, I'm going to do this. I'm getting the fuck out of here. And I can't think of a single person who didn't come back. And I was like, oh, man. I, you don't want to be that dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But I just didn't want to, in my eyes, fail. Right. Once I had a little bit of money in the bank and a job and they paid for my move and they even helped me find an apartment. Once I had that, I was like, okay, this is the perfect like stepping stone to not fail. Like I'm set up, you know? So yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah. Scary, but cool. And so were you working exclusively for, for DC or were you still doing some freelance writing? Yeah. I've never stopped writing. I've always made sure when I interview at jobs that they know that. Yeah, you, you might have uh, some, some side gigs. Uh... I mean, I don't want to say I told them they had no choice, <laughs> but I, did, I never really asked. I was always like, just so you know, this is what I do. I won't do anything conflicting with another board brand or another shoe brand or whatever. Sure, yeah, yeah. You let me know if there's a conflict, but this is a very important part of my career. It's what I love. It's what I've been doing. Yeah, so yeah. I just want you to know you're going to see my name pop up in mags and, you know. But most most people um, understood that that actually helped. Yeah. Like, you know, working for the mags when you work at a brand is kind of a good thing because the brand has a connection. They're usually advertising. Like when I was working for Soul Technology a lot of times and I was staff writer for the skateboard mag, it was just easy for me to be like, oh, can I review this new video that we put out? Or, mm -hmm. or they would hit me up to interview You know, like, let's say Spanky was getting an interview. They'd be like, you want to interview Spanky or you want to interview these guys? Because I know you've been on tour with them. So it helped It helped to be at the media in a way, you know, at the magazines in a way. Of course. So, yeah, you, you, you mentioned it a little bit, but uh, you wrote for several publications. Mm -hmm. and, and also, um, you, you just mentioned that you worked as well for Salt Technologies. Yeah. Did you go straight from DC to them or? Yeah. So DC didn't last long. It just wasn't, I wasn't meshing with my boss. <laughs> there were some issues with my boss. And um, okay. so I actually quit there after four months. I, I didn't oh. want to. So I wasn't with all the skate guys. Like I worked under this PR woman and me and her did not get along. And But across the hallway was like Blayback and Heath Brinkley was the TM at the time. And oh, okay. this guy, yeah. Sean Rogers was the filmer and like the writers were always in there. And it was like the funnest time, like hanging out in the team room when I could. And I love all those guys. Like I remember having Blayback on Weekend Buzz and I was just so happy to hang out with him for a couple hours because it just reminded me of like... Good old days in DC. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's just... It's not like we were best friends at DC, but just sitting around the team room and laughing, you know. And so... I quit DC. I was still able to get a little bit of money in writing. And then a couple months later, I got hired to be the, like the blogger for Etnies. Okay. And then I was at Soltech for nine years. So. Oh, nine years. Okay. I didn't realize it was that long. Okay. Yeah. Maybe like eight or nine years. And I, you know, over the years I ended up working with every brand and, you know, obviously growing and traveling the world and, and, and still writing. Oh, most of that time I was also with the skateboard mag as like the staff writer. Staff writer, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that was a really cool era of stability. I love being with the skateboard mag. I was at Soltech for a really long time. And yeah, it was just, it was rad. Just the skateboard mag was like a dream of mine because of all the people that were involved with it, you know? Yeah. So writing for them for so long and consistently was nice. As a freelance writer, having a client or a gig like that where you're just doing something every month 
or two or three pieces every month was awesome. I did that for like five, five or six years, you know? Yeah, like a dream come true, basically. Yeah, plus it builds your portfolio. Like, you know, I've got hundreds of interviews under my belt between writing and then Weekend Buzz. It's like hundreds and hundreds of interviews. Oh, yeah. So I love being able to like sit with people like we are right now for like two or three hours and you connect with them. And in most cases, you become friends for life if you didn't already know them, you know? Sure, yeah. And then plus I get to tell their story. Exactly, yeah. Or part of it. Yeah, no, no, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, you also wrote for Playboy at some point. I don't know if you still work with them at all or, or how did that gig uh, come about basically? That was like another dream come true. I mean, like when I was a kid, I should back up a little. So when I lived in Jersey and I was beginning to be a writer, all of publishing was in New York City. So I was like, I want to move to New York and maybe write for Rolling Stone or write for some cool music mag. Or I don't know if you remember that era of like the late 90s, early 2000s. But there were like magazines were booming, like Maxim, FHM, Complex. Mm -hmm. There were so many pop culture magazines and music and celebrities and I was just like, man, I want to move to New York City and like write for one of these mags and interview celebrities and interview like beautiful women. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I still love skateboarding, but that was always kind of a secondary dream of mine. I've never only been about skateboarding, even when I was younger. I didn't always dress like a skater. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being fucking 2000% skateboarder, but there was always a part of me that was like doing other things, you know? Yeah, yeah, you had other interests, basically. I had crews of friends who were like, weren't skate friends. They were like, go out to clubs friends, you know? Okay. So I've always wanted to like interview celebrities and like whatever. So mm -hmm. the cool thing about Trans World Stance was they were like a culture magazine that had skateboarding in it. So when I was writing for them, which was one of the first magazines I ever wrote for, I was writing pieces on like the lead singer of Korn. And mm -hmm. I interviewed this guy Beetlejuice from the Howard Stern show, who's now like become really popular on TikTok. Okay. You know, I interviewed this um, a model from New Zealand or Australia. Her name was Kylie Bax. She was like a supermodel. These were all like 90s, 2000s people, you know, mm -hmm. but I interviewed Todd McFarlane. He's the was the guy who did the comic Spawn. Okay. Then he eventually went over to take over Spider-Man. Um, yeah, so I've always had my eye on like non-skate stuff, you know. And sure, yeah. I was unemployed for a while, a couple of years ago, and I was on LinkedIn like looking for jobs, and there was a girl. There was a girl that worked at Playboy that came up in my feed. She worked in the IT department. Okay. And I just randomly wrote her a message, and I've never done this on LinkedIn before. I'm not like a LinkedIn person. I was just like, hey, I see you work at Playboy. I'm really sorry. I'm a complete stranger. But do you know if they have like any digital jobs open or, or need any help? And she wrote me back and she was like, well, I'm looking at your profile. Why don't I just interview, introduce you to the editor? And I was like, oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And from there, they asked me for pitches. Okay. And I, I remember pitching like, I think you guys would like Jason Dill. I think you might like Dylan Reader. Dylan was still alive at the time. And I gave the obvious ones like Tony Hawk. I could get I could get to Tony Hawk. I can probably get to Rob Deerdeck. I gave this whole list. And they were like, no, we don't like any of it. And I was like, okay, fuck. Like, I'll hit you back or hit me back. And like eight months later, they decided they wanted a, a Jason Dill interview. And so 
I hit up Dill and he was like, no way. Like, I can't believe I'm going to get to be in Playboy. That's so sick. And he was happy about it. I was happy that he was happy about it rather than doing it like begrudgingly or saying no. Had he started FA at that point or? Yeah, yeah. This was like 2017 or 16. Okay. And, you know, Dill didn't want to do Weekend Buzz. So I didn't know what he was going to say. I mean, I, I knew him from before that, from like Ed, when he wrote for Edney's and stuff, but he was like, fuck no, I'm not doing Weekend Buzz. And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> so when I, hit, when I hit him up for Playboy, I thought he was going to just tell me to fuck off again. And now he, he was stoked. So I was stoked. And then right after that, Brian Henderson came out of the closet and I hit right, Playboy. Right. And I was like, hey, this is a bigger story than you guys probably know. Mm-hmm. I was like, just Google it. It was the day that the Vice piece came out that him and Retta made. Yeah, Retta, yeah. I was like, I want to do this quick because everyone's going to jump on it. And they were like, okay, do it. So I was able to interview Brian. Like, I think it was the first interview after that video came out. And he was stoked to be in Playboy. The cool thing about writing for Playboy is most people are stoked to do it. And be oh, yeah. It's, it's pretty, uh, how do you say, like mythical or, or yeah. It's, so. Yeah, it's pretty iconic. and Iconic, yeah. I know we could go back in time and discuss issues with like, you know, objectifying women and things like that. And But for me, Playboy's always just been, I mean, I used to sneak into my dad's closet and read his Playboys. And mm-hmm. it's just this iconic thing that's become more than a magazine, you know? Right. And for me, writing for them was like a dream come true the same way Rolling Stone would have been a dream come true or even Vogue or something. So... Yeah, and then I, I think I went, they hit me up to interview Austin, I interviewed Bobby Hundreds, a bunch of people. So that was an amazing experience. I'm not still writing for them. Okay. After Hef died, they changed their formats and their business and editors came and went. So nobody I worked with is even there anymore. But Yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot. Yeah. And so uh, when in the, in the middle of all this, did you start working at um, Right Channel for Weekend Buzz? I think that started around 2010, around there? Or? Yeah, so that was interesting too. It's funny, like, if you listen to all my stories, how things happen, it's all so, like, random. So at some point before Ride Channel existed, Tony Hawk owned a thing called Shred or Die. It was like the Ride Channel before the Ride Channel. All right. And they made content, but... It was really more like a skater, like YouTube. They made content, but it was also about uploading your own videos. Mm-hmm. And their main show was free lunch. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember and free lunch. at yeah. some point, they hit me up to do a free lunch. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, because it's not like I was like famous or anything. But I think just having my blog and talking about things and I wasn't purposely ever trying to talk shit. I would just like document my experiences or give my opinions and... Mm-hmm. They hit me up to do a free lunch, and um, that was where the whole like Team Handsome thing came about. And I guess a couple things I said in there were funny or controversial, or people liked it. And so at that same time, they were like, "Hey, like your free lunch did really good, but also Tony's launching this new thing, and we need someone to help us with all the digital and the social and the strategy." Right. So I actually helped launch Ride Channel, the business with all their digital and their PR and stuff like that. And at the same time, they needed shows. And Jesse Fritch, who used to skate for Zoo York, he's like a vert skater dude. He was okay. the dude that interviewed me for free lunch and, and offered me this job. He had an idea for a show. They wanted me to do a show that was like Skateline, like Gary Rogers. Right. And I was like, I get it. Like Weekend Update on, on Saturday Night Live. Like, mm-hmm. and, and Skateline didn't exist at the time. 
and they wanted me to like do the news and talk shit. And I was like, I was like, man, like I don't. That's not really my thing. I know, I know people think. I think on the surface, a lot of people think I'm like a shit talker or a hater, but that's not really my thing. Like I kind of just make observations and like. I don't know. I just sort of point out things that I think are like absurd or ridiculous or funny. But mm-hmm. my goal is never to like target anyone specifically and roast them or make fun of them. Of but course, yeah. I was like, you know what? I think I'm too old for that. But I have an idea for like a talk show. I'm good at interviews. That's what I do for all the magazines. Like, let me do an interview show. Right. And they were like, well, we already have free lunch. And I was like, no, no, no. I have like an idea. Like, I just want to make a show. I told them, I'm like, when I'm on tour and I'm just sitting at the bar or the cafe with like... Pro skaters and... Yeah, or in the van, I'm having like the funniest conversations. I'm hearing the funniest stories. Sometimes I'm having really good, meaningful conversations. And I was like, I want to bring that experience to to the kids who will never have it. Like... What's it like to sit there and have coffee or a beer with your favorite pro? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was like my pitch for Weekend Buzz. And I was okay. like, but I want to hire a woman. So Erica Yeri, right? Yeah, because I was a huge Howard Stern fan. And I didn't want to copy Howard Stern and Robin. What I wanted to do was have a unique dynamic in the studio by having a female there. Mm-hmm. And not only for me to interact with, but for the skaters to interact with. And Erica knows everybody. And so having a woman there who is also friends with all the skaters would like relax it and give it a different vibe, have some female energy in there. And like Erica was perfect for it. Yeah, it worked very well. Uh, there was a good energy between you two. Uh... Yeah, and I, it's weird. I still don't. I still don't see a mixture anywhere of, I mean, I'm not too up on every single podcast that's out because there's so many, but yeah. I still haven't seen a mixture of like a male and a female host. Yeah, I, I can't think of one. I think there's some women hosting podcasts, but I still haven't really seen that mixture, especially on camera. So I don't know. I'm surprised that that still hasn't happened. It's been, we started in January, 2012. Okay. We went for five and a half years. We went through June 17, I think. We even have three episodes that never aired, like early episodes. How come they they were never released? They were just like rough. Like the set looked terrible. The formats were different. We were like sitting in a circle and chair folding chairs. And mm-hmm. but there are some funny moments, and they don't even have that footage anymore. But there were some funny moments. One of them was Sal Barbier and Rob Welsh. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, which was them making fun of me the whole time, which is funny. <laughs> okay. And then another was Dan Murphy and Mike Sinclair, and then another was Kyle Leeper and Clint Walker. My initial idea, too, was to put people together that didn't know each other. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking of the names you just brought up. Uh, did you say Kyle Leeper and, and, and Clint, Clint Walker. Walker? Yeah, so I wanted to have two skaters in a room who didn't know each other, and, like, everyone talk, and... I thought that would be an interesting dynamic, but what started happening is people just wanted to come on with their friends. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is totally natural. I just saw a few days ago um, an interview you did with uh, Tim O'Connor and he had Danny Garcia with him. Yeah. And they were both like friends from Habitat and stuff. And Yeah, and, and I was good friends with both of them too. Right, right, right. But you were aiming for that, to have people from like basically writing for separate companies and stuff that didn't really know each other? Yeah, I thought it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Maybe they would get to know each other. Or... If you think about it, it certainly creates a very different dynamic than having two friends there. I also thought it, someone could take this if they want it, but 
I thought it would be rad to have a podcast where like two people who don't like each other come on <laughs> and like see what, yeah not to start fights but to see what would happen like maybe they would like become friends or sure <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. I don't know like I think it would be such a rad idea to like have people who don't like each other uh, or or just people that you would never picture in the same room together I don't know like a a zero team writer and someone who skates for enjoy or whatever just some yeah yeah like very different uh styles i guess but uh yeah, yeah so, so that lasted for so so about five years that was probably some of the funnest best times of my career like i mean yeah. there were stressful moments i mean don't get me wrong like we had blowouts there were stressful moments behind the scenes but You know, I still get kids in my DMs like every day, like I miss weekend buzz. And I'm like, dude, yeah. so do so do I like <laughs> we just didn't want to keep going and make it boring. Mm -hmm. There was no reason we stopped other than it was just like we ran out of steam and we didn't want that to show on camera. And we're running out of guests. You know, we interviewed close to 200 people, yeah. you know, with, with two people every week for five years. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I remember seeing for the first time the Nine Club, uh, and I, I my first thought was, oh, it looks like we, we can buzz, basically. Yeah, and that was mine too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that was a lot of people's thoughts. I, I remember yeah. Roger Roger emailed me a link. It was like before they were live, right? And uh, I was like, oh, you have your own weekend buzz, and like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I was like a little salty at first, but uh huh, yeah. Not so much like that they did a similar format, but it would just be cool to get some credit. Yeah. You know, a lot of shows are obviously similar to the format of Weekend Buzz. I didn't invent that format either, but I think we kind of normalized it in skateboarding. You know yeah. what I mean? But I, those guys, they've had amazing success with that show. Like, And I think they proved the battle that I was fighting all the time, that the Ride Channel kept trying to keep our show really short. And I was like, no, dude, we can go longer. And, and every yeah. episode over time got longer. Mm -hmm. And Nine Club was able to prove that you can retain an audience for like an hour, hour and a half. More, yeah. Like they, yeah. they had uh, five hour interviews and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they've done a really good job, like getting everyone into podcasts. And yeah. obviously, you know, them being up in L.A. and Chris, them being more embedded in the industry than I ever was. Yeah. They were able to get way more guests than we were. And so they've done a great job. Like maybe they were like the sort of evolution of what we did, you know? Yeah, you could say that. They got people way more into podcasts and skateboarding. I'm sure they've upped the attention span of listeners. And um, I was just texting with Roger not too long ago. I was like, I think you beat us like in all the categories now. Like you, you have more views, more episodes. You've been around for... I think this year they just were around longer than Weekend Buzz. Yeah, I think they're five years old or somewhere around there. Yeah, They lapped us. They beat <laughs> us in all the categories now. I used yeah. to bust their balls. I'd be like, you still got to get this many views and do this many episodes and have this many years but under your belt. And, mm -hmm. oh, I mean, not that it was a competition, but yeah, <laughs> they've, they've done great. They've done awesome. No, it's it's cool and yeah, and I'm good for them. And but I, what I liked also about Weekend Buzz was that you you prepared your interviews much much more. It's a somewhat of a similar concept, but they're they're more about just spontaneously go, getting into a conversation without researching the guest too much. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably know. Like I did candles with them too. Right, right, right. Like I would meet up with Chris to drop off the candles, and we would sometimes like stand there talking for like forty five minutes, and we would always talk about the shows and. 
show life, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just don't think that was his vibe. I think they would rather just spontaneously chat where I I had limited time. Yeah. And also, I, I came from like a formal journalism background. And when you're on the phone with like, when you're interviewing like an actress or a celebrity, you know, sometimes you only have 45 minutes and you want to be professional and they have a really laid back vibe and a, they have a lot of time and they have a different rapport with the skaters than I had. So, you know, the skate nerd in me had questions from like back in the day, even when I was a kid, you know, and yeah, towards the end of weekend buzz, I would have my notes and not even look at them. I got really good at memorizing them and following steering the conversation how I wanted to go without even using my notes but it's good to have them there in an emergency right yeah, yeah you know sometimes you get a guest who's quiet or in a bad mood and they don't want to talk and if they throw you for a loop and you're like confused <laughs> it's good to have other questions there and I don't know that's just how I've always done it mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be prepared and like I said when you're interviewing like actresses or famous singers you don't want to waste their time Yeah, and you have to be professional for them to want to even, like, take you seriously. Of course. Actually, you just mentioned your, your candles. Uh, I know that you, you stopped doing that recently, I right? I sold But, it. Uh, right. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about that whole project, how it came about and everything? Yeah, so... My time was winding down at Soltech. It was getting kind of turbulent there. Not just for me, for a lot of people. But I was like, man, I'm so sick of working at all these companies and feeling like nobody listens to me. And the other part of my head was like, maybe no one's listening to me because my ideas suck. Like, <laughs> who am I? You know, mm -hmm. I felt successful. I did all this cool stuff. Weekend buzz, writing for magazines. But I was like, maybe I should just put my money where my mouth is and try something fully on my own. Mm -hmm. So... Right at this time, if I take you back to like 2012, 2013, a lot of pro skaters were starting to start small brands. Right. Polar, Magenta, uh, Jeff Raleigh started Silverware. We had loud headphones, happy hour sunglasses. Uh, Chad Tim Tim started doing a leather brand. Uh, Mike Moe started Glassy with his brother. Right. Mm -hmm. There was all these small brands. Mm-hmm. And so my initial concept for the 100th Acre was to have my own brand, which was going to be candles and tea, but have the 100th Acre be like almost like an Amazon just for like skater, handmade skater companies. Okay. Not that they needed my help, but at the time, all these companies were really small. It all happened at once. And I was like, what if you could go to a website and... Find all of it. Yeah. You know that everything there was made by a pro skater, not by a company he rode for. Right. 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 And you knew you were supporting the skaters and their brands, you know? Okay. And I even talked to a lot of people like, and they were like, yeah, sounds cool. Like, let me know, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we could drop ship for you. We could ship you the product. And I thought it would be really cool to have that. But then really quickly, I realized that logistically that would be insane. Like all the product coming from everywhere and having, you know, no offense to anyone, but if they forgot to ship an order, it's my fault. Oh, yeah. How am I going to manage what Jeff Raleigh's doing or all these people, you know? Sure. Even if they were interested, right? So mm -hmm. then I was like, well, let me just do... I didn't want to do a skate brand because also at that same time was a million hardware brands, a million grip tape brands, and it was like... Yeah, saturated market, basically. 
I'm like, you know, what am I going to do? Put a different color ink on a skateboard? And <laughs> so at the time I was really, I was buying tons of candles at my, for my house. And, you know, I've always been into like libraries and books and nature. And I was like, what if I tie this all together into something different? And what if I made candles? And, and, and then I, I had the plan. I was just about to start developing, doing tea because I love tea. But right. I had the opportunity to sell the brand five years later. So I was going to stop. I was just too busy. The reason I didn't stop sooner is because it was growing. Yeah, you, you grew it like five times or something. I don't remember the exact figure. But well, uh, I mean, that's easy when you start at zero. But yeah, well, yeah like yeah. the real growth happened like in the third to fourth year and the fourth to fifth year. I, it had like doubled twice you know, at a bigger level. And I was like, man, this sucks to give this up, but yeah, it's just taking up too much time and I don't make enough money from it. Like it's not worth it basically. Yeah. And I had talked to investors who were actually interested, but they were like, if you can just get it to this level, we'd be really interested. And I was mm -hmm. like, man, that's like another year and a half of killing myself, <laughs> but it's possible. Yeah. But I have this opportunity with USA Skateboarding and, and right. I had this opportunity with Ty Evans to work on a film. And I was like, these are like dream opportunities. Like I know owning your business and selling it is a dream opportunity, but I was yeah. just getting pulled back to maybe my my roots of like being a writer and working with my friends. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I had a friend who she hit me up for candles one day. She lives in town here. And she's someone I've known forever in Laguna, like just over the years. And she was like, hey, can I come buy some candles? Mm -hmm. uh, can I stop by the studio? And I just said as a joke, I said, want to buy the brand? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, oh, maybe. <laughs> like four months later, she bought the brand and it's doing well. She's yeah. got it in a bunch awesome. of stores. And I gave her like my business plan. I'm like, here's what I was going to do if I kept it to grow it. I just don't have the time. Right. But you need you need to get in retail. The e-commerce is killing it, but, and that's exactly what she's doing. She's in like 10 stores in town and awesome. she took it in a different direction that I needed to go, but didn't have time. Mm -hmm. Were you manufacturing all of the candles yourself or were you outsourcing it? Out no, elsewhere? I was doing it all. I okay. learned to make candles after I started the brand, which is a bit risky. And how, how did you, how did you learn about that? Yeah. I just bought like a hobby kit on Amazon. <laughs> okay and like made candles one night and i was like it's honestly not that much different than like baking when i was you know working at the bagel shop mm -hmm. you're just dealing with temperature and timing and ingredients and yeah yeah it's very similar it's there's no like big secrets it's just like dialing in external temperature with the temperature of the wax like in the winter it's going to be different than the summer and right it's it's so much like baking bread or something like that you know uh -huh. Yeah, I just learned like as a hot, like you would learn any hobby. I just had to learn faster because I was selling them. Mm. And uh, yeah, I did. That was the other thing. It was getting to the point where I was selling too many candles to make them myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Between Nine Club, they sold a ton of candles. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they were promoting it quite a bit. Yeah. They were having like pro model candles. They had like stuff. five pro model candles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, they would sometimes have like a birthday or an anniversary and do a candle or a Halloween candle. And, or they would get a new person, like Justin Eldridge would come in. And like towards the end, we were talking about a candle for Jerron. Oh yeah. I like, I sold the brand. So, you know. That was that right when he was uh, jumping on board basically? I think so, yeah. Okay. So, you know, I just couldn't keep up with the, the manufacturing. Like there's another company called Salt. They make eyewear here. Okay. You know, sunglasses and glasses. And they're a really cool company and they're based 
in the next town over. And I started collabing with them and making candles that sort of aligned with their um, releases of their frames. Okay. Matching the glass with the color of the frames and or matching the scent with an aesthetic. And they were using those as promo, sending them to all their retailers, giving away at trade shows. And it was going really well. Mm-hmm. So I just couldn't keep up with demand. And I was, I, I was starting to look for factories. And I just realized, like, I'm not an entrepreneur that wants to scale a business. I'm like a creative person who wants to, like, interview skaters and tell stories, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a really cool experiment because going all the way back to 10 minutes ago, I put my money where my mouth is and I was successful. I was like, you know what? I don't have to wonder anymore, like why these companies aren't listening to me or why people don't like my ideas. Like I've had successful ideas, Weekend Buzz, 100th Acre, whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I can be more confident and know that I have cool ideas, not all of them, but I don't have to feel down because I work for these companies that don't want to listen or can't implement my ideas or I feel they don't take me seriously, mm-hmm. you know. So it was something I needed to do for myself because it's really easy to work at a company, not just skateboarding, anywhere, and not feel valuable because you feel like people aren't listening to your ideas or that people think they have more experience than you or, mm-hmm. you know, people age and they get out of touch. You know, that'll happen with me too. Mm-hmm. So I just needed to prove to myself that I had what it takes to like run a business and help people launch businesses. And yeah. um, so the hundredth acre was meaningful in so many ways to me. I learned so much about it even fed into what I do for a living now, you know, e-commerce marketing, yeah, you know, manufacturing, like all that shit. So it actually makes me a better employee in the skate industry because of everything I learned during the hundredth acre, you know? Especially on the e-commerce front. Yeah. No, it seemed like a really cool um, project and a good experience uh, overall. So uh, did, did you say you sold it about a year ago or was it? I sold it in June. Oh, in June. Oh, it's very recent. Okay. I thought it was yeah. a, bit, a bit before that, but okay. You know what? This is just like, I'm going to throw this out there for like anyone listening, like mm-hmm. some, maybe it's advice or whatever. One of my favorite things about 100th Acre And I never used to appreciate this, or maybe I wasn't put in the position. My favorite thing about the 100th Acre was figuring out workarounds to major problems. Like, let's say at holiday time, my glass suppliers were out of glass. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I can't get black glass like I have all year, you know? Mm -hmm. What do I do? And like, figuring out how to get like new glass somewhere else or use that as an opportunity to change the glass and like update the look of the product. Or I really love figuring things out on my own and when it still worked and you didn't fail and you didn't miss holiday or you didn't you know like it's like holy shit like it just teaches you that things going wrong aren't the end of the world there's like always a solution and i never used to be that optimistic Mm -hmm. and so when it was my own business it was like oh how do i figure this out i know there's a way to figure this out i don't want to give up on this and yeah like failure is not an option basically yeah or Maybe not fully failing, just adapting, right? Sure. That was like a really cool thing. And that was one of my favorite things about the brand, actually. Yeah. Just not freaking out and not being like, (laughs) it's not the end of the world. Like, because I I actually taught other people to make candles and start their own businesses. And I would watch them freaking out about stuff. I'd be like, listen, calm down. It's you only fucked up 12 candles. That's yeah. It's like, it's okay. It happens. That's $50. You're, you're okay. You're going to make way more than that. <laughs> like you have me teaching you, which I didn't even have. So 
yeah, don't yeah, worry. Yeah. Like, yeah, you have to learn that you're going to waste money and you're going to fuck up. And it's, it's cool. It's like skateboarding almost. Like, you might break your board, you <laughs> might fall. Mm-hmm. You just um, mentioned it earlier as well, but you eventually went to work for uh, USA Skateboarding. Yeah, and I'm still there now. Right, right. So can you tell me a little bit about how that opportunity came about? And uh, so you were there, or sorry, you still are their uh, marketing director, right? Yeah, so so I'm the director of marketing and like merchandise or sales. So okay. I oversee and handle all, you know, email, social, uh, e-commerce, like I do marketing type stuff too. Like I'll show up at events and do whatever they need me to do actually. Like right. um, more, more traditional marketing stuff that's not digital. But my biggest role moving forward is there's a couple things that are really exciting that are happening. So one of our major pushes right now is to get skateboarding into the Paralympics. Right, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you, you mentioned that in um, this interview I just read. Uh, yeah. So yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. And then the other is the merchandise. So like right now, We're about to drop a collab with Andy Jenkins. We oh, nice. did a collab last year with Henry Jones. The cool thing about working with US, someone like USA Skateboarding is you're not like a brand. Mm -hmm. So I can just tap into all these different artists and be like, you want to do a collab? Want to do a capsule? It's not like the same artist, you know, that works for us. And right. There's another collab dropping with the Andy Jenkins one that I, I'm not going to say, but it's sick. Okay. But yeah, so it's like now I'm like trying to pick artists for spring, you know, like who do I want to ask? You know, it's, it could yeah. be anybody. So it's awesome. sick and it's like and, and we can hit artists outside of skateboarding, too. Like maybe we ask Shepard Ferry or maybe we, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so so Josh Friedberg is like my best friend. He rode for New Deal back in the day and was I think he rode for like 6040 or ATM click or something back in the day. And then he did 411. That was his business. And um, we got to be friends around 2008. We launched an online magazine together called Already Been Done. We did that okay. for a while. Um, we've always sort of integrated each other into our projects. and Because that's what friend, friends do, right? Right. Like we work, we work together at Element. I've got him jobs before. And so he got brought on very early, like 2017. He was basically there while they were trying to plan and form the olympics you know mm -hmm. the committees and the that were gonna like oversee all this so you know eventually when they got money he was like i want to bring you on and you know so that wasn't to me i'm not so concerned all the time with like core and credibility i'm concerned with i want to do something new and different like i like being at the beginning of things mm -hmm. like weekend buzz was ride channel was new you know hundredth acre was new uh, Primitive Skate was new when I helped those guys launch that, you know. I just helped Nigel launch Disorder with his mom and his friends. Mm -hmm. Like, I like doing new stuff. I don't want to just, like, sit around and, like, at the same shoe company, making the same shoes for years. Yeah. So, to me, the idea of working for an organization and the Olympics overall, that's going to bring skateboarding to the 5 billion people when it was on TV. And yeah. it's going to create an equal playing field for women and men and... It's going to, you know, give pools, you know, bowl skating some more shine and whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just see I see evolution there and I want to be a part of it. You know, I uh -huh. get it. I get that sometimes shit's corny. Like maybe the fucking uniforms are corny. I don't know. Like mm -hmm. maybe the rules are corny. Maybe the announcer fucked up. But like, I just can't be concerned with nitpicking all those things. Like 
they're always going to be there. People hated the X Games. They hated Street League. They hated Tony Hawk, and they hated you know what I mean. Like yeah, there's always going to be shit talking. Yeah, and then everyone gets used to it, and it becomes part of skateboarding. Like exactly, yeah. nothing's going to ruin skateboarding. Seeing people like in their 30s and 40s like crying about the Olympics, being like, "It's going to ruin skateboarding." I'm like, dude, like how old are you? Like nothing ruins skateboarding. Like we've seen it for decades. Like, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you think it's corny, it's corny. But I like the the potential and the evolution, and I knew it would give me a chance to further work with adaptive skaters which I've been doing for a decade more and try to get the Paralympics. I knew I would be at the beginning of helping make history. Yeah. You know, whether people like that or not, or that sounds fucking arrogant or not. Like I was there, I was at the first Olympics Mm -hmm. (laughs) with skateboarding and I helped it get there. So of course I'm going to take that job. You know what I mean? And I get to work remote and I get to have all these amazing athletes that I work with. And every year the team, the team changes a little bit every year and I was at the Olympics and I can't wait to go to Paris a bunch of times yeah. to, to plan and be in one of my favorite cities. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, um, Very but yeah, cool, like man. the, f- the focus right now is going to be the adaptive stuff, the Paralympics and the merch is going to be like my heavy focus. Can you tell me a little bit about the adaptive skateboarding? So, so is that basically, um, Like, I guess people like, uh, what's his name? The, the guy who wrote, writes for Birdhouse? Uh, yeah, like, Felipe Nunes. Right, yeah. Like, people like him who, who, who don't have legs, for example, who will be able yeah, to participate? Yeah, so I guess we'll call it, you know, the easiest term is people with physical disabilities, right? Right. You know, I, and I know the term disability isn't always the right term, but a lot of my friends in the adaptive community still use that word. So, okay. yeah, so, you know, you've got someone like Felipe Nunez, you've got Aaron Fotheringham in in his wheelchair. Um, it's called wheelchair motocross WCMX. Like okay. he's the one, he's the one at the nitro circus doing the double backflips over the mega ramp, you know, yeah. <laughs> and front flips over the mega ramp. And, you know, back in the day there was Augie Souza. He was, right, you right. probably remember yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was sick. Yeah. John Comer, rest in peace, John. Like Dan, Dan Mancina or? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So now you've got all these people in this age of skateboarding becoming more open-minded and inclusive. You're starting to see all these people get shine. And then all of a sudden more people with disabilities come out of the woodwork. And now we've got this whole community. There's like a, I just saw on Instagram, there's like a huge contest happening in Brazil, like an adaptive skate contest soon. Okay. But I got involved way back. It was like the X Games had like an adaptive demonstration, maybe like 2006 or seven or something. I remember just showing up like early in the day. I was like, I don't even know what this means, but it has skateboarding in it. So I'm going. <laughs> and the next thing I know, I see Comer and I see Aaron in his wheelchair and they're skating the bowl. And I met um, the woman who ran the organization. Her name was Amy Purdy. She ran it with her husband, Dan. Amy went on to be quite famous. She was on Dancing with the Stars. She finished second place. She has no legs. Her legs are cut off from the knee down. Okay. Uh, she lost them from, she had meningitis and got oh, infected. Oh, okay. okay. And um, she ended up going on tours with Oprah and almost winning Dancing with the Stars, writing a book. And she had an organization way back then that was called Adaptive Action Sports. It still exists. And they were supporting skaters and snowboarders and surfers who had disabilities. Some of them were coming back from the wars you know, and they would be missing a leg or an arm. And some of them have birth defects, like whatever, you know, so. Right. But 
I've been trying to help as much as I can with this community because it's just been, I've just always been so in awe of them and I always felt that the world needs to see them. And Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting parts to me is they all have to kind of invent their own way of skating. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. They all have a different physical situation. Yeah. You know, so someone who is on crutches skates one way and then someone like Felipe skates another way and yeah. then Dan skates another way. And then mm -hmm. someone with only one leg skates another way. And then someone who might be paralyzed from the waist down uses their wheelchair different than someone who isn't, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to create formats now and judging, just like we did for skateboarding in the Olympics. Right. We're trying, we're in the process right now with some committees of like, what is the park going to be like? What is the course going to be like? What is the judging going to be like? What are the classifications? Yeah. You know? It's complicated to put all these people under the same roof. Yeah, it seems like a challenge. Yeah, and then now you have people like Dan who's trying to build parks that are accessible for visually impaired people. And Justin Bishop is another one. He's helping Dan. Justin Bishop, he had a part not too long ago, but he's working on developing a sound device that helps the visually impaired. It's like this little beeping thing. He puts it wherever he needs it, and he judges the distance of the... The obstacle he's going to skate or, yeah. Yeah, like he'll put it at the top of the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs, uh, at the top of a quarter pipe, at the bottom of a quarter pipe. Yeah. You know, I watched that dude ollie six stairs one day and I was like, damn. Dude, try ollieing, try ollieing three stairs with your eyes closed. <laughs> I wouldn't even want to roll off a curb or something. <laughs> like, no. Yeah, and so I hate to use the word inspirational because I don't really think that's it. I think when you're around these dudes... You're just like, wow, man, like they're adapting to everything. They're very persistent and determined and, and really they're just normal like us. And that's what's cool about skateboarding, right? Is even before I knew these, these adaptive type skaters, I had the friend who was like overweight and couldn't skate really well, but it was sick to see him finally learn a kickflip, right? Mm -hmm. And I had the dude who like, I was scared of transition. I was horrible at it. But when I would drop in and like, I learned a back disaster or something, people were stoked for me. Like skating is about appreciating the level that everyone else is at, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then acknowledging that like, fuck yeah, you, you learned your first kickflip or that was your first drop in or... So to me, it's just like, oh my God, Felipe just did the car wash. That's fucking sick. Like, yeah. imagine doing that thing on your knees, you know? Like, yeah. It's not like, here's the guy with no legs that did the car wash. It's like, here's a dude that has to invent this different way of skating and he's accomplishing, he's accomplishing it. Yeah. That's the way I view it. I mean, of course you can't ignore that he's got no legs, but yeah, I, I like seeing everyone at their own level and progress. Like in professional like sports, I don't feel like you have that. Like the quarterbacks are the best quarterbacks in the world or whatever, right? everyone's at a professional elite level it's not like all these different levels that you can appreciate the baby steps you know mm -hmm. so for me that's my favorite part of the adaptive skateboarding and meeting them all they're all so funny i laugh so hard around those people like <laughs> yeah i've done like panels and stuff with them and so our goal is to get it in the 2028 olympics in la oh so so it won't be in uh, in paris in 2024 no unfortunately i These things take time, but... Well, yeah, yeah, I imagine. There might be the possibility of some sort of exhibition or demo or something. Uh, okay. I haven't been to a Paralympics yet. I've only been to the Olympics, so... Right. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, um, I'm really excited for that. Like again, um, doing something that pushes skateboarding forward for everybody and also is like history. It's new. That's what I like. That's what I liked about skateboarding from day one. Mm-hmm. Every month it's like open the new big brother. It's like, what's the new ad going to be? What's a new trick, new this, new that, new pro. Mm-hmm. I like the change in skateboarding. Yeah. I don't like it to just sit still. You know? No, yeah, I absolutely agree. No, it's going to be sick. Yeah, I look forward to seeing um, adaptive skateboarding. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to see more and more of those skaters because it's just the beginning, you know. Just yeah, like you're yeah. seeing so many women and so many LGBTQ skaters. And it's really cool what's happening right now. I equate it to, for them, it's like their golden age, like our 1991, 92, 93, you know? Yeah. The women and the LGBTQ community and the adaptive skaters are going into this era right now where like 20, 30 years from now, they're going to be like, yo, remember when like this girl did this and, and Felipe put out that video part? Like, yeah, it's going to be the way we look at the questionable video or the blind video or... Yeah, yeah, they're making history, yeah. So yeah, it's I'm excited for them because I think they're all going to have that feeling in a couple of years that I have now when I watch Gino and Snuff or something. Absolutely. Actually, that's um, a good transition. I wanted to ask you about this new show you, you're going to launch. Gonna launch yes. Sorry. And you actually shared with me and on your Instagram this little segment with uh, Richie ba- Batres. Is that her name? Yeah, you right. got it. So yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the, this show that you're going to launch and, and when is it going to start and what is it going to be basically? Yeah. yeah, so I did this to myself, but I, I'm calling it a show, which already puts pressure on me to like do it regularly and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I, I've realized already that like doing Weekend Buzz, I had a team of people like pushing me a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. Who's on the show this week? What are we doing? And I'm just like, I don't know. Did Erica find a guest? (laughs) Do I need to find a guest? It's helpful having like a crew behind you, like forcing you to be responsible every week. So let's just call it a show. But right now, I just finished editing the first one. Okay. Last night. When I got my job with USA Skateboarding, one of the ideas was to have a podcast. You know, the goal with USA Skateboarding isn't just to be like Olympic related. It's like, how do we elevate skateboarding in any way possible? Because that makes it better for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. We just happen to be focused on the United States, right? So we can do anything. So we came up with the idea of like, we should do a podcast. We have all these team riders. And so over time, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, well, what would be different? Like, what would be not, you know? What angle do you want to have? Yeah. Yeah. And as my own mental health journey intensified, and again, going back to these individual conversations I mentioned earlier with pro skaters, just hanging out, the Mm -hmm. things they don't say on camera, learning who's had some real struggles in their life that like pros you might not even imagine or industry people you might not imagine. I'm like, and also Weekend Buzz was like the podcast now are everybody sitting around like telling silly stories or being skate nerds, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when did you start your career? When did you do this? Why did you quit this team? Blah, 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 blah. Right? Mm-hmm. So the podcasts are all kind of like the multimedia version of Chromeball's interviews, basically. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, what can be different? What's interesting to me? What can be helpful? And the idea was and is to talk to people about their struggles the obstacles in their lives, the things that they have to get through to survive and thrive, you know, Mm -hmm. 
I have a long list of people who said they'd be on the show. And so okay. these are going to cover, it's going to span from addiction and recovery to death, to mental illness, therapy, mental health. You know, I'm hoping to get someone who was quote unquote canceled and talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to talk to people about overcoming things and their struggles, because in my experience, when you when you share stories, that's when you connect with people and people who are having trouble don't feel so alone. Like, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I lost my dad to cancer. And then someone might be like, oh, wow. You know, sometimes I talk to Dylan's sister on Instagram, like, you know, I lost my dad to cancer. I kind of understand a little bit how you feel. I'm really sorry, you know, and we've had little conversations. You know, it's easier to connect with people when they understand, like, oh, my God, this pro skater went through recovery. He was addicted to drugs and now he's good. And, you know, seeing people like Andrew Reynolds or Eric Ellington be sober, that's inspiring to people, you know, and yeah. I just got a DM today. Some dude left me a voice DM. Man, I don't even remember talking to him. But he was like, he was like, hey, I wrote you like a year ago. I was in a really rough place. And you were talking about mental health on Instagram. And you like talked to me and you gave me all this advice. And he was like almost crying on the DM this morning. He's like, I just want to say thank you so much. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm not saying like, I'm as impactful as Andrew Reynolds being sober, but that you're helping. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's just these issues, you know, going back to that free lunch, there's just things people don't talk about in skateboarding. And, you know, the reason I got into all that, like team handsome and like gay talk back right. in the day was because nobody was talking about it. And I was like, where's all the gay skaters? And why are we pretending that it doesn't exist? Yeah. Yeah. And why did nobody talk about, you know, the Tim Von Wern thing? And why can't people just be authentic? It's sad that I mean, it's their choice to come out or not, but... Of course, yeah. I know people want to be themselves. They want to be authentic. And we're seeing that now. Only, I mean, that free lunch was 2010. And my point, I just wanted to bring that up and get it out there. Yeah. Again, I'm, I don't know if I was the first person to talk about it, but like the Team Handsome gay thing started a whole... It started years of people joking that I was gay. Mm-hmm. And me just being like, fuck it, whatever. And then kissing Richie Jackson. And, oh, right, yeah. And even at the time, Vanessa Torres and Leo Baker, then Lacey, were on the show. And they're like, you're so gay. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to normalize it more. And whatever whatever influence I had, I just wanted to normalize it. It's like, I'm happier than ever right now to see, like, you know, when Brian came out. I mean, I'm sure that had a massive impact when oh, Brian yeah. came out. That was uh, huge, yeah. Yeah, but just seeing, like, Leo doing the company now, Glue, and seeing Unity Skateboards doing their thing. Yeah, or their skateboards. Yeah, you know, some of the Instagram accounts, like Quell, Skatism, the Skatism magazine, like, seeing all these little niche communities, Bigfoot magazine, the women that do that, like, seeing all these communities doing their own thing and creating their own media and their own voice is... I mean, that's what I did, media. I wanted to get my voice out all those years, right? Right. And so they're doing it. And I just wanted to, like, open that conversation. And a couple of years ago, as my mental health deteriorated and my journey, for lack of a better term, sort of intensified, Mm -hmm. I was like, man, this is another thing no one's talking about, like, at all, you know? Like, people are killing themselves. People are on drugs and getting addicted to drugs and alcohol, and there's a lot of stuff behind this. And, and maybe if I start talking about my diagnosis and my therapy, mm-hmm. 
maybe it'll help. And I think John Rattray around the same time started doing his thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With suicide prevention stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's rad because I think the mental health discussion has exploded way faster than the women or the LGBTQ discussion. You uh -huh. know, it's, it's way accelerated. You know, now we have the Ben Ramers Foundation. And, right. Yep. And I thought it was cool that people spoke about Ben's suicide because in the past, if you've noticed in skateboarding, like if someone dies from like an overdose or suicide, usually no one says anything. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big, big secret. Yeah. I mean, that's how you know, because it'll be like, oh, Dylan passed away from cancer. This dude passed away in a car accident. This dude did this. But when it's like, oh, this dude passed away and nobody knows why. It's usually suicide or drugs. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. my whole thing was like, I think this is another thing that I should start talking about and like making it as normal as possible, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or even having a sense of humor about it sometimes because that pulls down people's walls, you know? Yeah. So I don't know how we got on this. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about the new show. And uh, so you, you said you just finished working on the first episode, right? Yeah. So, so it's really important to me to, to have this sort of mental health overcoming angle and for people to share those stories. And, you know, like, so the first episode is about Richie Batches. Richie is a trans skater who attempted to qualify for the Olympics. That's right. And she, she had to do a testosterone test or something, right? Or, or Yeah. So we had to do a virtual qualifier for this year because of COVID. So right. basically you have to, everyone had a one minute Instagram submission. It's like any other contest. There was the open qualifiers, then the quarterfinals, semifinals. So everyone had to submit a new run each time, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So Richie sent a DM and was like, hey, I'm a trans skater. I'm a woman. Can I enter? Mm-hmm. I was the one on the Instagram answering DMs at the time. And I was like, and we discussed this. I was like, I want her to enter. I want her to have a shot. Yeah. But I also don't want to encourage something that's going to like devastate her if it's not allowed. If it's not going to work. And yeah. So in the meantime, Josh was trying to figure out the rules. And I'm like, Richie, just enter. Because if you're allowed and you don't, like, that'll suck. Yeah. So just enter. So she entered. And they said she needed a testosterone test, which she got, but the deadline was so short. They gave her like a couple days Okay. she couldn't, she couldn't get it in time, but her testosterone is like 280 units, like above the limit for women, like almost impossibly high. Right. Okay. So, and we talk about this on the show, like she could put herself in like physical harm, trying to lower her testosterone that much. Yeah. And that's a, a big point of discussion in the episode is like, how far are people willing to go? Like, where's the physical harm and the risk? And, you know, some people, it's more important to be themselves and, and take this path than to worry about the risks of the medication or whatever. So, mm. which I admire. But yeah, so it turned out she qualified first, but was essentially disqualified. Okay. And so, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I understand the argument for there being like maybe a physical If you were a man entering a woman's event, maybe you have a physical advantage. I don't know if there needs to be a trans category. I know there was a weightlifter in New Zealand that entered, I think, men's weightlifting. Okay. That used to be a woman. I might be wrong. It's one or the other. Okay, okay. And so I thought about that. I was like, wow, I know what Richie would have had to go through to even be able to enter. I wonder what this weightlifter had to go through, like, you know, to meet the hormonal requirements. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the physical requirements. So yeah, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I think the discussion is important. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's important that she entered and she tried. And now we have this conversation. It's not up to me or anyone at USA Skateboarding. So when this all happened, Josh was like, man, I want to interview her. Mm -hmm. It would be cool content to go along with everything for 2021 and the Olympics. And I was just like, okay, maybe this is the first episode of my show (laughs) Mm -hmm. that we've been talking about. And he was like, okay. And so hopefully it's dropping next week. Oh, okay. Next week. Wow. So this is really good timing because... This is my promotion for the new show. <laughs> awesome. And um, yeah, I hope that I'm able to get some new ones cranking out really yeah. soon. It's just been a busy year with the Olympics and everything. And Oh, yeah. You know, initially they were like, let's put this out for Pride Month. And I was like, nah, I don't want to just look like we're doing one thing for Pride Month. And then, mm-hmm. then there's the other thing of like me getting ready to put myself back on the internet again after this like mental health journey mm-hmm. I've had. And it's like, Okay, now I'm going to have to deal with slap again. I'm going to have to deal with people making fun of me. And I've dealt with it my whole life, but I'm also in a different place right now where I'm more careful about triggers and things that are going to upset me. And I'm just more careful now. Yeah, I understand. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to put myself out there talking about these sensitive topics. And inevitably, I'm going to say something wrong while talking to a trans person. And then people are going to get mad. And I just have to be ready, you know? Because yeah. I, I know my intentions are good and I there's a bigger picture to this than whether I use the right terminology every of second course. of yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, fucking cancel me or whatever. But <laughs> So yeah, um, it's coming. Awesome. <laughs> but yeah, I mean the interview was done in May. Yeah, that's what I was, uh, that's what I saw. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was before the Olympics, yeah. And so do you have other in- interviews uh, already recorded or? No. But I don't plan on every episode taking five months to produce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I would like it to be like twice a month or something like that. Fingers crossed, you know. Okay. But these are meaningful things and sometimes they take time, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's emotion involved. I mean, we have footage of Richie's dad like assaulting her. That's going in the show. Pretty heavy, yeah. It's not always easy for the person we're interviewing to be like, okay, do I want to put this in? Do I want to... Producing Weekend Buzz took two hours, like show up, interview, mm-hmm. and then they would edit it. We had a, a specific editor. This is a little heavier. It's like, are you are you going to be okay with this? Like, yeah. do we need a trigger warning in the front of it? But I think it's going to be really impactful to see like what I was just talking to you about, like footage of Richie's dad, like freaking out, throwing chairs and cinder blocks Damn. and cursing at her because she wants to be a woman. And just wants to be authentic. You know, I saw that footage and I got chills. I was like, mm. so thankful that she's willing to share that footage. Because I know there are millions of people that probably went through that exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's a little couple teasers I'm throwing in, you know, about our conversations and what's in there. but Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I look forward to it. You mentioned you were working on something with Ty Evans as well. I think a a film or something. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I actually have two projects with Ty. One's about to start and one's about to finish. But we've been working. It's been out there on Instagram, but we've been working on a documentary about Nigel's family for like three years now. Okay. I don't want to talk too much. It's not my place to talk about it too much, but it's been pretty crazy and pretty cool. And it's almost done. So 
I don't know what, you know, as far as the producers, it's their decision, like what happens with it. So, right. But Nigel's story is like more insane than everybody even knows, you know, when mm-hmm. you get into the details and you talk to the family and stuff, it's, I'm sure, yeah. you know, speaking earlier about mental health and therapy and recovery and diagnoses, like there's so much stuff, you know, that people deal with from having maybe a crazy father or, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a really amazing project, like the biggest honor and awesome experience working with Ty and his work work ethic. And he's everything that you've heard. Like, I don't know how he has so much energy and he's so passionate about his projects. Like he'll do anything. He'll get in the car on a minute's notice and drive to Tampa (laughs) from California. Like he'll do anything it takes. You know, I kind of had to step up. He'll, he'd hit me up like, yo, do you want to go to SF and interview Carl Watson? I'm like, when? It's like tomorrow. <laughs> oh, okay. shit. Okay. It's taught me to kind of like drop what I'm doing and, and yeah, focus. Push yourself. Yeah. No, he's an interesting character. Yeah, he's amazing. And uh, I worked with him a little bit on We Are Blood and a little bit on The Flat Earth, but just he wanted help writing. Okay. But this project like was something he had asked me to be a part of from the start. And then I just pitched to him a new project that we're going to start. Awesome. Yeah. So that's like one of those things like Playboy or something, like working on films with Ty Evans. That's like a bucket list thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. When is this uh, Nija documentary supposed to come out? Do you know? I don't know. I'm doing all the interviews on camera, you know, and helping with a lot of the writing and a little bit of the editing, just like storytelling stuff. That other stuff isn't in my hands. Okay. But yeah. Um, in the near future. Yeah. But again, it's me being in therapy and like having those diagnoses recently helped me really contribute to this project in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do four years ago. Mm-hmm. Talking to everyone on the level about family and everybody's psychological stuff. Like, Yeah. You can relate a lot more. Yeah. And it just makes you, if you're going through therapy sort of intensely like I am, it just makes you a better person, but it also makes you better at your job, whatever it is. In my case, as an interviewer, it's way helpful to have introspection about a little bit of introspection about how minds work and why, what my traumas and issues are and how that can relate to other people's like, Mm -hmm. so it's helpful for everybody, you know, but yeah. It's been a blessing. You know, I've, I've kind of been a little bit lying low over the years after Weekend Buzz. And yeah. Figuring stuff out and wanting to do things differently than just like interview someone for Gencom or, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but I did all that already. So yeah. I wanted to focus on my mental health and my autism diagnosis and quite frankly, just focus on some financial stuff so that I'm a little more stable. Mm-hmm. And now I can work on these cool projects, like you know. Yeah. And you also mentioned a, a book earlier that you were writing about, like, uh, especially that yeah. experience in the bagel shop and stuff. Yeah. So I'm always this guy. Like, I, <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I start projects and then someone interviews me and I talk about it. And then the project, like, like I think I talked about a book like eight years ago in an interview, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> But again, I think I've dialed in what the book needs to be, what the story needs to be. I went for another master's degree recently. Okay. And this is going to sound crazy, but I was just feeling really bored and understimulated. And there was a, there was a college nearby, like a really good school that had a writing program. And I was like, okay, my first master's is in, is in English writing, like a split between English and writing literature. Right. 
my second one, let me go for a creative writing one and just get sparked again and start writing. And maybe I'll write my book as my thesis, you know, because if you do a creative writing master's, you basically have to come out of there with a book. Yeah. I was really enjoying it. But two years into it, I was just like, dude, I'm this older guy who's already like had a career as a professional writer. And I'm in classes with younger, more they're, they're talented, but mm-hmm. I just realized I didn't belong there. And I was sparked in the beginning, but I wasn't inspired there wasn't anyone there that was like mentoring me the way I did it the first time. And it was like, okay, it makes sense. Like I was inspired for like a year and a half, but I'm with these people who are just beginning their writing journey. Like, yeah, very green. Yeah. And it's a different generation of kids too. They're interested in different things. They were very interested in like politics and Trump and the Mm -hmm. me too movement and black lives matter. And so this was like in 2016, like when all that shit was blowing up, like when Trump got elected there was kids like crying in the classroom. I had a class on the on election night. Oh yeah. And I was like, this is insane. Like this political energy would have was never in my school the first time. Yeah. And I realized there was this generational gap. Not that I don't care about me too and Of course, yeah, yeah, no. But that's not what I write about that politics aren't my interests, you know. Mm-hmm. So it became really obvious that there was a generational gap and and a and an interest there was a lot of science fiction too, and like fantasy. Like people were writing a lot of like Harry Potter type stuff. Okay. I was like, wow, sci-fi. It was it was around the time of The Walking Dead. There was a lot of zombie oh, type okay. stuff. It was interesting to see how society was impacting what these people wanted to write about, and uh, I wasn't in the right context. So my point is, I I started the book though. Okay. I started the book. I wrote a couple chapters, sample chapters, and then. I have a friend back in Jersey whose husband husband is an agent. I randomly hit him up like a couple months ago and I was like, what's publishing like now? I used to be an editor, mm-hmm. but that was in 2001. And he's like, oh, you know, it's kind of the same, but obviously digital and, you know, and he, I sent him the chapters and he was like, pretty sure you should write this book. Like, I think I could sell it, you know, and I was like, fuck, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he just hit me on Instagram yesterday. He was like, where's your book? And I was like... <laughs> They wanted me to finish it by now. They're like, if oh, we damn. could get it, if we could get it out around the Olympics, and I was like, yo, you want me to write a book in three months, like my first yeah. book? No fucking way. I'm like, yeah. I think I can start it in the winter or the spring. But it's about I, I worked in this bagel shop from age fifteen to twenty one or mm-hmm. twenty two, and um, it was a Jewish a kosher bagel shop in New Jersey, and it was it was pretty much my first part time job, and it. It paid for my skateboards and my cars and my music and my car insurance and some of college. And But I was not very close to my family. And the bakery was full of the craziest, worst people ever. Mm-hmm. Fucking heroin addicts, fucking ex-convicts, fucking... When I say worst people, I just mean people who were involved in shit that were, was so gnarly, you know? Mm-hmm. They were actually great people, which is the, the point of the book, but... It's like the type of people, like if my parents knew when I was 15 that I was working with these dudes. They would freak out, yeah. They were doing cocaine in the bathroom every day. Like I would see people like cut parts of their fingers off like by accident. And people were getting in fights in the bakery and just a lot of things I don't want to like reveal right now because it'll be in the book. But I basically got sort of taken in by this group of derelicts. Mm Mm-hmm. And this job became my actual like surrogate family and taught me everything I knew about life. Like those dudes taught me my work ethic. They taught me, I was working overnights in high school. Mm -hmm. 
they took me to my first strip club. They got me drunk for the first time. Like all the things you would maybe do with your dad or your older brother, you know, like they taught me about life, about how harsh life is, about how scary. They were the people who, if you saw them, you'd like roll your car window up if you were mm. driving by them, you know, like crazy dudes. Some of them would get arrested for like kicking somebody's ass the night before they had to come in or, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would get a call that some dude got, you know, this guy went to Brazil to visit his family and he got murdered. He's not coming back. We need you to cover his shift, you know? Yeah. Crazy shit. And uh, it sort of became, it's like a coming of age sort of memoir about just like an eight year span of my life. Cool. I don't think my life is memoir worthy. I think this story is a really cool story about like, you can find family anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like skateboarding, you know, and yeah, and there will be a skateboarding tie-in and a mm-hmm. little bit of mm-hmm. my modern life, but you can find family anywhere. It doesn't have to be your real family. We aren't obligated if we don't connect with our family or they're not there for us. We're not obligated to fucking force a relationship and be loyal to them, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I had a hard time with my family. They weren't terrible people. We just didn't connect. So. Mm-hmm. The bakery book is going to be like kind of thematically like that, like surrogate family and coming of age and how sometimes the shittiest, this shitty job that I was scared I would never get out of actually turned out to be the most important job I ever had. So it's it's going to be full of like wild, crazy stories and, and hopefully just a very human story of like a boy trying to grow up and find some guidance, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Yeah. And they want, we'll probably tie in a little bit of like my recent diagnoses and how mm-hmm. it plays into my relationships as a child or at that job. Like, obviously, now that I know I'm on the spectrum, I can think back to my life and be like, oh, there's all these situations that were really weird. And now I know why. Yeah. You know, I understand better. Or where people don't understand, didn't understand me or thought I was being an asshole. So they beat me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, And so there's a couple of modern tie-ins from my modern life that'll go in there, you know, like my career and my diagnoses, I think. But I think it's Uh going to be a cool... I can't wait to do it. I can't die without writing a book, dude. Yeah. (laughs) No, you have plenty of time to write a book, but uh, hopefully it comes out soon, though. I'd love to read it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've really taken an interest in film lately, just in my personal life. And then I've gotten the opportunity to work with Ty and I'm working with the... I'm working, actually working with the Illegal Civ. Mikey Alfred from Illegal Civ is working on another another film. Okay. And I, I've helped with the script a little bit. So this accidental other bucket list thing started happening where now I'm able to work on some films. And I'm hoping, my goal would be that a book I wrote became a film. That's like the new dream I have kind of. Yeah. Now that I've done all this other cool stuff, so. We'll see. Well, the the book you just mentioned, I think, would be a good uh, good material for a movie, probably. Yeah, and I I don't know if this is gonna sound weird. The book is not politically correct. It's gonna be harsh. It's it's the mid '90s. There's gonna be some crazy shit in it, and I always hope for the return of a little bit more raw film and content. You know, right? I understand mm-hmm. where we need to be sensitive to things and where things. Some content is just gratuitous, like you don't need to always have that violence or that racism. But Mm -hmm. this is all real stuff that happened. Violence, racism, sexism stuff, homophobic stuff. Like there's a lot of crazy shit that would be in this book that some people won't want to hear or see. But there's no point in uh, sugarcoating it, basically. Yeah, and I'm hoping I'm able to do it in a way where people understand, like, this is fucking gnarly. Mm -hmm. This is what people did back then and, and... 
I just want to be able to tell the story raw and, and authentic. Yeah. And, and have people understand like what society used to be like and what some people still are like. They can be awful, you know? And yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to maybe do something really raw because, you know, when you're writing and skateboarding or these other things, you, you got to do things sometimes a certain way, depending on the audience. Yeah. The audience of my book is like, I don't give a fuck. Like whoever wants to read it, this is my book and my story. So yeah, it'll be, hopefully it'll be offensive. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, not to anyone in particular, but just like crazy. Yeah. You know? So work in progress. Yes. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm setting myself up for criticism and failure in case it takes three more years or whatever, but. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we covered pretty much most of the questions I had. Yeah. So uh, I think we can wrap it up here. But yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's it was really really nice talking to you. And uh, yeah, and thank you for asking me. My pleasure. I yeah. love doing interviews. I love seeing new people start new, you know, articles, podcasts, websites. I like that was what I wanted to do when I was younger. And like when I whenever someone asked me, I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, I've I've, I've had uh, some really cool uh, people so far. I'm really happy. So like, yeah, and I, I'm actually su surprised uh, still uh, today, like uh, that I get to talk to people like you and or like Nestor Judkins, who was my first uh, guest. Yeah, you know? I saw that. Yeah, I was so stoked. I was like, I can't believe I'm talking with these people. Uh, Isn't it amazing who says yes if you just ask? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I always tell people like, If you want something, just ask, even if it's like you're trying to get a job in the industry or like, mm. you know, you might have to work for free for a little bit or some people might say no, but any industry, but I can only speak on skateboarding, like just ask, don't be scared. Like maybe Heath Kirchhardt or Jason Dill is going to say no to your interview, but you can just ask, you know, and then, yeah. you know, I've always been amazed how many people have said yes that I didn't think wanted to, especially for this new project. So there's another piece of advice. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely good advice. Yeah. I appreciate you including me. Yeah, so thanks. You got the scoop on the new show. That's it for my conversation with Robert Brink. You can follow him on his Instagram account at Robert Brink. I will put up some links for everyone to access Rob's new show with USA Skateboarding as soon as it's available online. If you haven't seen any Weekend Buzz interviews, I highly recommend that you go watch some of them, such as episode 88 with Tim O'Connor and Danny Garcia. You can also check out a lot of his published writings at allmylinks.com slash robertbrink. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards.